I invite you to open your Bibles, please, if you want to follow along to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. This is not a Mother's Day sermon, but as I wrote it, thought about it, it could be. In fact, as I, as I worked on particular aspects of it, I thought that would be very easy to apply to motherhood. And so it may be that if the Lord gives me that kind of uh, guidance at those moments, I will indeed apply it to a particular aspect of motherhood. But I am moving forward together with you in our move through Romans. And we're going to read the first five verses, and I'm going to focus on verse five. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Now, in verse 5, I'm going to focus on those three phrases that you see, grace and apostleship, obedience of faith for his name's sake. And I'll do it under this threefold heading, the nature of grace as the free and undeserved enabling for ministry, the effect of grace, namely the obedience of faith in other people, and the ultimate goal of grace, which is the glorifying of the name of Christ among all the peoples. This verse is Romans in miniature. The theology of Paul is written deeply in this small verse. So my prayer and hope is that before we're done, you will catch on to what grace is. 155 times this word is used in the New Testament, 100 of them in Paul, and a fourth of those in the book of Romans. If you get grace, you get Romans. If you don't get grace, the book is going to be a closed book to you. It will be confusing. Things will not make sense in the book of Romans. And so my prayer here at the beginning, and we'll do this, I'm sure, month after month for several years, will be to make grace plain. This is a book about grace. Now, if you were to go out on the street today, I do not assume that the use of the word grace would be understood. If you did a survey and say, let's do some free association here, grace, you know what the first thing out of their mouths would be. A pretty princess who died a few months ago in a car wreck. That's the first thing that would come to people's minds if you said grace on a street in America. The next thing that would come to mind probably is the beautiful movements of an ice skater. The next thing that would probably come to mind this is my imagination here. I'm not, I didn't do a statistical study of this. I think the next thing that would come to mind is a short prayer at the beginning of meals. And the last thing that would come to mind perhaps is an undeserved kindness. So I don't assume that this morning when I use the word grace, I'm connecting with everybody. 
Which is why we need to dig in here a little bit and try to figure out what is the biblical reality of grace. What's God's reality of grace? Not just what's its use out there in the American public, but what is the Bible's meaning of grace? And how does it bear on your life this morning? And verse 5 is a tremendous help here in chapter 1 to do this. So let's get it in context. Back up a couple of weeks. Remember, verse 1, the first week... Paul begins by identifying himself as servant of Christ Jesus and then called to be an apostle and then set apart for the gospel of God. And then he takes a a three-verse interlude before he picks up his apostleship again in verse 5. And in this three-verse interlude, which we saw last week, he fills up that phrase gospel of God at the end of verse 1. And he says it's a planned gospel, it's a gospel about the Son, it's a gospel about the coming of the Messiah, the Son of David, and it's a gospel about the risen, triumphant Son of God in power. Now I think the reason he stuck in that unpacking of the gospel of God before he says any more about grace and apostleship is because grace is built on all that. We'll see that through the book. Grace is owing to the fact that a son of God came, clothed in human flesh, Messiah died for us, rose triumphant over death. Now, because of that, grace can come to sinners. So he does that, and then he comes to verse 5, and he says, through him, or through whom, and that whom is referring right back to the end of verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ, through this Christ, this risen one who was risen son of God with power. We're going to see how that power connects now with verse 5. Through him, I received or we received grace and apostleship. So he put in the gospel and all that about the son so that we would know grace is not something we presume upon. Grace is owing to Jesus, not owing to us. You end every one of your prayers, I hope, in Jesus' name, amen. Precisely because the only reason we can expect to be graced, as we say grace, is because of Jesus, not us. We don't deserve it, and that's why it can be called grace. Now, what is it? Let's look here and see if we can figure out what it is. He begins by saying we received grace and apostleship. Now, I take the putting together of those two words, grace and apostleship, to mean that the main meaning of grace in this verse, it may be different in other verses, but the main meaning of grace in this verse is an undeserved power and enablement freely given for ministry. In his case, the ministry of apostleship. So Paul is saying, God graced me, he gave grace to me for my apostleship. He gave me the calling of apostle, and he empowers me for this calling of apostle. That's what I think is meant by he gave grace and apostleship. Now, why do I think that? In chapter 12, for example, in verse 6, Paul says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
So Paul thinks of grace as that by which you are gifted differently from other people in this room and by which he was gifted as apostle. Then in verse 3 of chapter 12, it says, through the grace given to me, I now speak to every one of you. So the grace that gave him his gift and apostleship is the power and enabling through which he speaks with apostolic authority. So grace is power and gift for ministry. Here it is again in chapter 15, verse 15, at the end of the verse. He says, grace was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. You see exactly the same thought as in chapter 1, verse 5. So in verse 5 it says, through Christ, from God, I received grace and apostleship. That, I, that is, I received my calling on the Damascus Road to be an apostle, and grace has rested on me to enable me to do this ministry every day since then. Now the question is, if that's the main meaning of grace here, a freely given enablement for ministry, how did he get it? How does grace come to the Apostle Paul and to us? And it is not a response to Paul's goodness, right? The reason God, this takes us back two weeks, the reason God permitted and ordained that the one whom he had set apart from his mother's womb to be a minister of the gospel, the reason he let Paul become a murderer and a persecutor of the Christian church is so that on the Damascus road, without the slightest willingness on Paul's part to submit to the Lord whom he's persecuting, Jesus would show his matchless godlike grace in saving him sovereignly. So that Paul would have to be stunned and say, I was not moving in this direction. God is not in the business of looking for people who are moving his direction. God does not help those who help themselves. That didn't come from the Bible, believe it or not. It may be true in some limited context at work. But in salvation, God sovereignly picks his Pauls and saves them on their way to persecute the church, on their way to the bar, on their way to the prostitution place, on their way to the strip show, or sometimes on their way to church. He can do it anywhere and any way he pleases. He is free, and that's the meaning of grace. And some of you came this morning through constraint. Didn't want to be here, and you're here, and I'm telling you, God brought you here because he loves you. So listen carefully, please, to what he has to say to you this morning. We do not receive grace by getting ready for grace. Grace gets us ready to be saved. Let me give you some examples of, of how grace comes to us. Romans chapter 4. I'm going to stay right in Romans as much as I can to give illustrations of Romans. Romans 4 verse 4 says, Now to the one who works, works, his wage is not credited according to grace. This is a literal translation. Some versions say, due to favor. The word is grace. His wage is not credited according to grace, but according to debt. 
In other words, when you work for somebody, they don't grace you with your salary. They owe you your salary. And it is a matter of injustice when they don't pay you your salary. That has nothing to do with grace. Grace is when you, by faith, receive a gift that nobody owes you. Mark it. Grace cannot be owed. Grace cannot be owed. It is free, a bonus above the salary, or there is no grace. Here's another verse to get that point across. Chapter 11, verse 6, may be the closest thing to a defining way of receiving grace in all of Romans. Chapter 11, verse 6 says, If it, it referring to election, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Couldn't be clearer, could it? If you receive anything owing to works, that is, deeds done to earn. That's the meaning of works in Paul. Deeds done to earn. If you received your salvation or your ministry by works done to earn, he says, grace would no longer be grace. What correlates with grace as a means of receiving is not works, but tell me. All right, we got to work on this. I'm going to try this again here. The means by which grace is received is not works, but... All right, that's a little better. And, and in a few years, it'll resound. Believe me, it will resound. And where do I get that? Am I just sticking faith in there because I know theologically it's the opposite of works? No. Let's do it from Romans 4.16, where it says... For this reason, that is, being an heir of the promise, for this reason, being an heir of the promise is by faith in order that it may be in accordance with grace. I don't have to make this up. All you have to do is read the whole book and you'll understand that you got two possible ways to try to get the grace of God so that he will accept you, love you, save you, keep you, empower you. One is works, by which you try to earn it, and the other is faith, by which you acknowledge you can never earn it, and you freely receive it and rest on it, and love it, delight in it, and be happy with it. And this is impossible. Works cannot receive grace, because grace would no longer then be grace. It would be a business transaction, it would be a debt that God owes you, and God never owes you anything, period, ever. The only way to relate to God is by grace, through faith. Now, back to the point of verse 5, that it is power in this verse. It is power for ministry. Does that get confirmed anywhere else besides chapter 12 and 15 that I looked at earlier? Let me just read a verse from chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, As sin... Reigned, now mark that word reign like a king. As sin reigned in death, even so grace reigns like a king. Grace reigns through righteousness 
unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, let me sum up what we've said so far. This is all on point one. We got three points like this. Phrase number one, through Christ we have received grace and apostleship. That's what I'm talking about right now. And what we've seen is that grace is a power freely given to grant gifts and ministry, carry you through those. For Paul, it was apostleship. For you, now, I could start talking about motherhood. And I could start talking about singleness. And I could start talking about studenthood. And I could start talking about computer programming. And I could start talking about nursery work. And I could start talking about Sunday school teaching. And whatever God's calling on your life is, singleness is a calling for some. Single mothering is a calling for some. Motherhood is definitely a calling for many, as I saw just a moment. And the point here is... Nobody can fulfill that calling apart from grace. Paul couldn't do apostleship without it. Mothers can't do mothering without it. Single people can't be single without it. Widows can't be widows without it in a way that pleases God. It's a power for ministry and calling. It is free and undeserved and earned. And faith is the means by which you get it, not works. Those are the points I've made so far. Let's go now to um, the next phrase, namely the obedience of faith. Through the living Son of God risen with power... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. So grace is given for a calling like apostleship or motherhood for a particular effect in the lives of children, you could say, or in the lives of the Gentiles. And the effect here is described as the obedience of faith. Every parent that stood here at the front should have as their main goal for these children the obedience of faith. Now what is it? What's that phrase referring to? Now there are two possibilities here. Those of you who have the NIV already see one of them because they chose to translate it. To exclude the other and to choose the one. Namely, the obedience which comes from faith. That's one possible meaning. Another meaning is the obedience which is faith, or faith which is obedience. See, that word of in English is real ambiguous, just like the Greek construction here is ambiguous. When you say acts of courage, acts of courage, you mean acts which come from courage in your heart. Acts come out. Or if you say block of wood, block of wood, it's a very different use of the word of. The block is made of wood. Now, which is it here? Is it obedience which comes from faith? Faith gives rise to acts of obedience? Or is it Faith, which is what makes up obedience. Obedience is faith. Because when the gospel comes, it says, believe. And you believe, you're obeying. So faith is obedience. 
Which is it? And the commentaries and the, and, and the uh, scholars here, just they split right down the middle on this. And there's almost no way to be sure, given the phrase itself. But I'll tell you which way I lean and why, and you ponder it yourself. Both are true, by the way. Both of those are true. Absolutely, biblically, theologically true. The question is just which one does Paul mean here? I am very moved by Leon Morris's question in his commentary. Why use two words if you just mean one word? Faith. In other words, if, if Paul meant to say, we receive grace and apostleship to bring about faith among all the Gentiles. Why did he complicate matters by saying the obedience of faith instead of just faith? In the book of Romans, obedience is very important. Chapter 6 is going to talk about obedience. You are a slave to the one you obey, whether to righteousness or to sin. Chapter 9, verse 32 says, By faith and not as though it were, were by works, we obey the law. Chapter 14, verse 23 says, Whatever is not from faith is sin. Which means any attempt at obedience or any other act which isn't springing from a heart of faith, winds up in just being sin because it displeases the Lord. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. Well, because of those kinds of verses and because of this word obedience, I'm inclined to go with the NIV here and say that the meaning is the goal or the effect of Paul's apostleship and grace is to bring about faith which yields obedience or to bring about the obedience which springs from faith. Say it either way you want. Both are true. Faith is his goal and the obedience which comes from it is his goal. So Paul puts a very great premium on the fact that obedience comes from faith. All true obedience comes by faith. Now why? Why is that? Now if you've been tracking with me in the first point, you will probably be able to answer that question. Why is it that faith yields obedience? Back up with me to point number one, or the first part of the verse. There it says, I receive grace for apostleship. And that means that the ministry of apostleship and the obedience of apostleship is the gift of grace. And I argued that you don't receive this grace by works, but you receive it by faith. And therefore, grace, grace flows giving gifts and enablement for gifts and the obedience involved in fulfilling that gift through grace. And how is it received? It's received by faith. And therefore you have the obedience of faith already implicit in point number one. You, you get that? If 
our gifts and our ministry and the obedience of that ministry are given by grace. And if grace is received by faith and not by works, then that obedience is channeled through faith and is called in point number two, the obedience of faith. Faith correlates with grace and therefore the obedience that comes from grace also is the obedience that comes from faith. So if you want to be an obedient person and live the Christian life the way Paul conceives it, then work on your faith. Don't try to work on your works because you'll wind up being a legalist. Work on your faith. Focus on the Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so focus on Christ, know Christ, delight in Christ, meditate on Christ, get the whole Christ before you. Faith will rise because grace will be coming through it and then obedience flows out from it. Last point, number three or last phrase. Why does God set it up this way? Why does God have such a passion to be the giver here, the gracer? And why does he establish it so that works, our works, do not get it? Faith, like a little child receiving it, gets it. Why did he set up a salvation? And why did he set up an apostleship, a motherhood, a singleness, a pastorate, a studentship? A nursery worker, why did he set up the Christian life so that all of life is a believing reception of grace which then empowers obedience? Why did he make himself the origin of it all and the enabler of it all? And the answer to that is given at the end of verse 5. Through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, or nations, or peoples? Why? What's the ultimate goal? For His name's sake. The ultimate goal of all God's dealings with you is that the name of Christ would be exalted in your life, and in your job, and in your family, and among your friendships, and everywhere you go this afternoon and tomorrow. Will Christ be exalted? Will people read the banner of Christ off your life? That's why you exist. If you wonder, why do I exist? State it in your mind right now. I exist ultimately because... Now fill in the blank. And I pray that God would enable you and give you the humility... And grace to fill it in that the name of Christ be exalted in my life. If you write that as the reason you exist, everything will be different. Let me confirm this with a verse from Romans 9, verse 17. Paul says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for this very purpose of showing my power in you so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. 
God raised up Pharaoh. He dealt with Pharaoh the way he did for this ultimate reason, that the name of God would be known in the world. God means for the name of his son, who is his own image, to be known in the world. So verse 5 gets at it by saying that Paul's apostleship and the grace for it and the effect of that apostleship by bringing about the obedience of faith which receives grace is all unto this end for the sake of the name of the Son of God that he might be known and loved and exalted and treasured and glorified. Now this is why God makes our salvation and our ministry and all our obedience dependent upon grace through faith. If our obedience, if our ministry were to come by works, we would get the glory. If I accomplish the pastorate, in the strength that John Piper supplies, John Piper will get the glory and perish with it. If I accomplish the pastorate in the strength that God supplies, God will get the glory and I will get the help. That's why he says it's all by grace through faith. Let me read you. I'm going to go outside Romans here. Only time I'm going outside Romans this morning. But it is so good. The way Peter says it just can't be improved upon. First Peter 4.11 puts it like this. Whoever serves... Now, let's just make sure we all put ourselves in there. I say pastor, father, husband... You fill in the blank, okay? Grandmother, aunt, uncle, Sunday school teacher, computer specialist, policeman, bricklayer. You got your two or three things that you occupy your life with now? Whoever serves is to do so in the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Everywhere I go to speak, I was in Orlando on Thursday night. I spoke in video conferencing with Perth, Australia, 7 o'clock Thursday morning. I went up to Winnipeg a week ago. Everywhere I go, almost, I quote this verse. And I say something like, at Bethlehem, the closest thing I have to a verse that sums up a ministry philosophy is 1 Peter 4.11. Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies in order that God would get the glory. And I always use those gestures. <laughs> like that. And that's my theology. Just like that. And if you get that, if you, if you are deaf here this morning and can read my lips, perhaps, and you see, God, I need you. I need you for this ministry. I need you for this sermon. I need you for the baby dedication. I need you to make it good for Noel today. Give it to me. By grace, I trust you. 
I don't deserve this. I'll give you the glory. You get the glory. People will see the glory. You get the glory. I get the help. Good deal. This is my theology. And I believe it's Romans 1, 5. If it's not Romans 1, 5, you need to, you need to write me a letter. God gets the glory, or let's use the words of Romans 1, 5. The name of Christ is exalted because disobedience here is not by human strength, but by prayer and reliance and faith that God will come and God will anoint and God will work and God will free and God will humble and God will give love and God will give memory and God will give liberty and God will brood over this congregation and get glory for himself. Last question. When I say this, that God makes his ultimate goal the glory of his son or his own name, is it loving of God to do that? Now, the answer to that question in the book of Romans is given in two places. How can it be loving of God to make his own name so important? In Romans 10:13, it says... Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, if salvation, that is freedom from sin, and the hope of eternal life, and union with God, comes by calling on the name, if God doesn't make the name known, He's not a God of love. That's not hard, folks. That's easy. God must pump and puff God for my sake. Right? If God says, well, I'll just keep myself secret here and go humble. If God does that, you lose. And that's not loving. Everyone who calls upon the name of God will be saved. So make your name known, God. And the other answer in the book of Romans is chapter 5, verse 2. With this I stop. It says there, We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. When you call upon the name of the Lord, and you receive salvation, what is the essence of salvation? Eternal golf? Reunion with my mother in heaven? No. The glory of God is the end of my salvation. Seeing it, savoring it, loving it, treasuring it, cherishing it, depending on it, being swallowed up into it. If that's true, if, if Romans 5-2 says, we exult in the hope of one main thing, the glory of God. If God does not display that for me and attract me to that, He's not loving. 
And therefore God must be God-centered in order to be loving. God must exalt the glory of God. It's my only hope. It's my only treasure. It's my only ultimate satisfaction. And so my answer to that last question is, I am so thankful that I don't have to choose between the goal of God's grace, which is the glory of God, and the goal of my longings, which is the glory of God. If the goal of God's grace and the goal of my longings is the same, namely the glory of God, then his puffing himself and his loving me are one. We know this, don't we? It is in the Bible, believe it or not. It's right here in chapter 1, verse 5. My closing question is, is this your longing? Do you long for the glory of God? And if it is not, would you, as we close, pray quietly in your heart, Oh Lord, I hear the words coming out of his mouth. I see a little bit of the connectedness of it all. But this this tasting, this spiritual apprehension, this loving, this affection, this embracing, this receiving, this resting upon grace by faith to God's glory, that is not my experience. If that's you, admit it and ask God to open your eyes, to see it, and then embrace it. Just embrace it. Let's pray together. Father, here John Piper reaches his limit, even if I were depending on myself to this point. For at this point, only the Holy Spirit suffices. The hard heart can only be replaced by the heart of supple, tender, docile, humble, receptive flesh by a supernatural act of new birth through the Holy Spirit. And I ask you to come now, Father, and draw people to the Savior. Nobody comes to me, Jesus said, unless the Father draws him. Oh, Father, draw this morning. Draw right now, I pray. Lord, come and work. In Jesus' mighty name. As you go, may the Lord make his grace very precious and powerful in your life today. You're dismissed.